0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1929, a shocking murder trial took place in Hungary. A group of women, all hailing from the same tiny village, stood accused of murdering dozens of men over the course of more than a decade. Men including sons, lovers and husbands. But why did they do it? How did they do it? And how on earth did they remain undetected for so long? Award-winning journalist Patty McCracken spoke to John Borkham about her research into the so-called angel makers of Nargrev, shedding light on the wider social and economic factors that may have motivated this group of women to murder.
1: Firstly, Patty, a very warm welcome to the History Extra podcast today.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here.
1: So to kick us off, just, just set the scene for us. When and where does this remarkable if slightly disturbing, story take place?
2: Well, this story begins in a very remote village about 60 miles east of Budapest and on the plains of Hungary. And when I say remote, I mean remote. You go to the most remote place, turn left, and go about 100 more years. It's very remote. And I pick up the story in 1916. So we're in the middle of World War I, Hungary's losing badly, from day one, and the story goes from 1916 and ends in 1929, but at the time it picks up, we're in this very remote village where most of the young men are at the front, but also coming home, and you can imagine this is a very poor farming community with not many people really running the show, but then what happens, they had a pandemic that was horrific, Spanish flu. So Spanish flu comes at them. They've got also, not just Spanish flu, but you've got at the end of the war, which covers this period, you have a kingdom that had been existing for a thousand years, crumble to nothing, to dust. And then all this, in this vacuum of power, The communists are trying to come in, and then you have another war. So they had a war with the Romanians who were wanting the spoils. They wanted Transylvania. Others, you know, Czechoslovakia was born of this. So I sometimes try to imagine what it would have been like, but my mind just can't wrap around it, and I think that probably was how they were feeling too. They just couldn't wrap their heads around the politics of what was going on, but in the village... Their concern really wasn't about the politics. They just sort of accepted things as they were as they were going because this is how their lives always went. They were the peasant class and they just had to sort of tolerate whatever, whatever happened, happened.
1: Yes, yeah, so these are very turbulent times. And in this village, Nagrev, one of the key people there is this local midwife who is known as Auntie Susie. Can you tell me about her background and the role she played?
2: Yes, she's known as Auntie Susie a very familiar term. The midwife played a huge role not just in this village, but midwives played huge roles in villages throughout Europe. Up till World War One. they were called wise women. They were often sort of mystical figures, but they were also absolutely essential to the health care of communities. So when we think of midwives today, we think, oh, they deliver babies. How sweet, you know? And that is very sweet and very important. But the midwives in European villages were extremely, extremely important. They didn't just deliver babies, they also were the health care for people. So you can't imagine there's a doctor, you know, coming around. You can't just, you know, go over to the doctor's house and say, hey, doc. I've got a sore throat, can you give me something?" So they would go to Auntie Susie in this village. So she was an expert herbalist, which was typical of midwives. So it's kind of like if you and I go into a forest, we see trees, they go into a forest and they see a pharmacy. And so they healed everything from hernias to headaches, and I don't know if Auntie Susie did this, but I've heard in some cases, tumors. So they were quite powerful, and you can imagine quite powerful and quite useful. So farming community, they also helped deliver midwife animals sometimes. And they were also the family planners. So they would deliver babies, but they would also perform abortions for families to keep, for whatever reason was needed, usually to just to keep, not have so many mouths to feed.
1: Right, okay. So is this an open secret, would you say?
2: I don't see it as an open secret. I just... I see it as something that has been forgotten, that maybe politics came into things. I think it was just an accepted practice. It was just a practical matter that this is what's been done through the ages. Um, We have lots of families that have big family trees, but most families don't have huge family trees. And this would also be in the case just... For, for whatever reason, you know, whatever reason, whether it was a financial consideration or a woman's health consideration, you know. But they were difficult abortions to perform because they were dealing with poisonous materials. So if you're, I can't remember if they used belladonna, but if you have something like belladonna, which is quite powerful, or hemlock, it has to be given in exactly the right dose. And so it was always a gamble. So it's not something that was taken lightly. It's not something you could just take a pill. It was something that had to be done with great care.
1: Indeed, indeed. And but Auntie Susie, she's harboring an even darker secret, isn't she? Can you tell us what she's doing with arsenic?
2: She certainly is harboring a very dark secret that she shared with a few of the women there. So Auntie Susie, she would sort of trot down to the local store and she would buy flypaper and she would come back to her village house. Uh, She would distill arsenic off of the flypaper. You can't do this at home, folks, because they don't put arsenic on flypaper anymore. (laughs) Um, And she would put it into a little vial and she would put that vial in her pocket. You imagine a babushka with uh, an apron that she wore all the time over her little her black dress. And she would go around to the neighbor women and she would say, why are you bothering with him? I have a solution. And she would literally have a solution in her pocket. She had this elixir that she would pull, pull out and she would say, we can, we can fix this problem. And so women were like, hmm, well, my husband... It's not so nice to me. He kind of beats me and he's not a nice guy. And so, you know, (laughs) the rest kind of comes into this situation where people weren't getting caught and why became why not? Why do it became why not do it? Nobody else. My cousin over there did it and she didn't get caught. It's been a couple of years. And then my third cousin, she did it. She didn't get caught. So it became a growing posse of women that were in on this.
1: Sure. And do we know when Auntie Susie specifically started this killing spree?
2: We don't know. And to be clear, it wasn't only Auntie Susie in this village, or for that matter, any village picking on Hungary. It was was not, that was the open secret in Europe that this was going on. But I don't know when she started. I know that she came to the village in 1900. And I start in 1916 i believe she started earlier the earliest case that was tried was tried for 1911
1: right okay so there is this this history of it and why is arsenic poisoning such an effective method of killing
2: it's really hard to detect and it can also mask and pretend like it's something else so it's it's quite a little trickster arsenic is because you can't really taste it maybe perhaps a little taste of metal but, you know, anything could taste. You could have water sitting out for a little bit and it tastes like a little bit of metal. It can have such a range of symptoms depending on the dosage, depending on the body it goes into. So it's a tricky little guy, arsenic is, because it can it can manifest, you know, as a heart attack or as some as some other illness that it comes into. So you have to know what you're doing. It preserves a body. So when you, when you would dig up, a corpse and there's a lot of arsenic you go oh, well there must be a lot of arsenic in here they look just like the day they died
1: right very 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 morbid as you say she's not the only person in on this and i suppose the way your book presents it is it's presented really as an ensemble piece for instance she has a friend called maria who gets caught up in the story can you tell us about her and what happens to her family members
2: yeah maria is was a fascinating character to me. And I found her really tragic. And I found her difficult to write about, which I didn't think I would at the beginning, because there was a lot of um, dramatic events that came from Maria. And I thought as a writer, wow, this would be fascinating to write about. But I found it more burdensome to write about her because she just seemed such a tragic person. Maria was a wealthy member of the community. She was from one of the two mo- wealthiest families. She, so she had more privilege. She was very, very beautiful. She had these beautiful crystalline blue eyes that kind of mesmerize people. And she had this raven black hair. She was quite the beauty. She's very well-educated for that community. She was just larger than life in ways that even she couldn't handle. She was very egotistical, very, very narcissistic, a very unsettled person, and was always drama. Wherever Maria was, drama followed. And if there wasn't drama, she would do something to manufacture it. She had a son from an earlier marriage who was born with syphilis that she passed through the birth canal. So with her, it was dormant. Uh, But him, it created disease in him as a baby and as it progressed. But she did not raise him. So she had fled in a scandal. She had pretty much fled the village and went to Budapest and came back when he was a young man. And she came back to conduct a relationship with the most eligible bachelor in Nagarev. So you have Maria, who is this sort of charged femme fatale, this this being that sort of Attracts drama, attracts men and drama in equal measure, and you have these other two men: her son, who was very well liked in Nagarev, and the village was very protective of him. And then you have Michael, the man she um, came to have a relationship with, who was really well loved. He was um, very—he was a ladies' man for sure, and just kind of irresistible to the women and. You know, all the men wanted to be him. So all the women wanted to bed him, and all the men wanted to be him. So she, after being in Budapest, she comes back to Nagarev, and she's thinking she's going to come back and be sort of the queen of the village now that she snagged its most eligible bachelor. And she sees her son, Alex Jr., somehow she sees him as a threat to this relationship. And she goes about figuring out what to do to get him out of the path to her happiness, you know.
1: Right. So she collaborates with Auntie Susie and Alex Jr. unfortunately dies. I mean, he's just one of many victims and, you know, so many men are dying in these suspicious circumstances. Who is the first person to kind of think, hmm, there's there's something not quite right here?
2: I wish I knew who that ground zero person was. That doesn't really exist. There were anonymous notes that were being passed to who was essentially the mayor, the town clerk. And that they were actually later learned, figured to be coming from women by the handwriting and such. So there were people suspicious, and people were trying to pass notes. Interestingly, none of the notes that I found fingered uh, Auntie Susie. It was always the women around her that they pointed to. And I think the men were suspicious too. Men were suspicious. So many men were dying that there was a situation where a man was walking down the street one day and he runs into a group of his friends or acquaintances and, like, hey, how are you doing? And they were so surprised to see him because they were literally on their way to his funeral. And they're like, dude, what are you doing here? We're going to mourn you. He's like, no, I'm I'm alive and well. So so many men were dying. They were getting mixed up as to who was dying and who wasn't dying. So it was kind of crazy. But I think you had people who were thinking, maybe it's happening, but it's not happening. My aunt could never do my cousin, my wife could never do this. People were just involved in their own lives, and there was just this big force. This midwife was a big force in the village. It's too much for them to get their hands on.
1: There is this collective denial almost. Uh, But Auntie Susie, she does end up in custody, doesn't she? She's arrested for something else.
2: She is arrested for something else and she thinks, oh my gosh. She actually gets acquitted on those charges. She gets convicted and then she's out on bail and then it goes to a higher court and she mysteriously gets acquitted on these charges. So when she comes back to the village, she's emboldened. She's thinking, I'm untouchable. Nobody can reach me. And it's important to note that midwives at this time weren't just the de facto doctors, you know, as their herbalists, but they were also the the wise women. They were shamans. Usually they were Romani, and so they had a different spiritual calling. And because of this... A lot of the people in the community kind of, I guess we're in awe a certain way, but feared, respected, with a capital R, respected these practices. And so I think that was also why nobody, everybody sort of walked a wide berth around her. And when they came, when she came back in, you know, having been acquitted after she had confessed to these other crimes and then convicted on these crimes and then somehow mysteriously gets acquitted. A lot of people were thinking, you know, what kind of magic did she work? What did she do? What spell did she cast to get herself walking these streets of this village again? And so the people who feared her or were suspicious of her feared her even more now because they didn't want anything to do with her sort of mystical ways. And then the women saw, wow, she's getting away with it. So maybe I will come to her for my (laughs) husband's problem with my husband. So she put fear into the hearts of many more men and also got another, you know, larger posse of women to kind of, you know, buy her, quote unquote, medicine to take care of their problems.
1: Yeah. And she's being pretty brazen about it, isn't she? She's boasting about how much arsenic she has and how many men it can kill. And she's also describing herself as an angel maker, which is obviously the title of your book.
2: Yes. So when she's boasting about it, she's actually quite careful. She would not necessarily boast, but she tested the mayor. I see I call him the mayor, he was really the town clerk. She tested him. He was a friend of hers, but she just wanted to see what he would do. So she didn't go around telling everybody about this. She she was she was a pretty smart woman, but she did test the main man in power to see what he would do and he he laughed at her. Said, "Oh, aren't you funny?" you know um but as the angel maker goes yeah and the angel maker is actually a term um a german word an old old word for uh, an abortionist and so that's kind that's how they came to be known as the angel makers i wish i'd thought of this title for them but somebody in the press somewhere way way earlier than me tagged them this
1: now i don't want to spoil the the ending of your book or Reveal what happens to the perpetrators. But what is the overall legacy of these crimes in Hungary today? Are are they well known?
2: That's really interesting. When I went to to Solnok, which is the town where the trials took place, so Solnok is the county seat, the people who were about 40-ish, maybe so millennials, hadn't heard of it. So they went home and asked their parents, and their parents had heard of it. So as far as Hungary goes itself... No, it was sort of a story lost to Hungary, as far as I could tell. So that's just from my sort of anecdotal observation. People are like, what is that? And they know it there. When they do know it, they know it as the arsenic trials.
1: Right. Okay. So by a slightly different name. Now, Patty, like, this is a genuinely very impressive piece of scholarship. And I found it utterly gripping. And I think part of that is because of the way you've written it. You have written it, it's all true. That you've written it as a historical novel.
2: W- what informed that decision? Well, I'm a journalist and so I was even surprised at myself when I made that decision. But I felt like this is a story that at its needed to have heart and needed to have an emotional truth to it and that the only way or maybe the best way I could do that was to tell it as if it was, I sort of call it a docudrama instead of a documentary. So to really bring the village alive, bring the people alive, these were all people, not statistics. And as much as it is draw-dropping, I really wanted it to be a story that really stayed with people emotionally and would be talked about. And I felt that that's what the women deserved, (laughs) the perpetrators, the victims, the village, a lot had been written. Not a lot had been written, but what is out there was out there. I didn't find was very accurate. It portrayed these women as, um, you know, their men are off at war and these women are having affairs with Russian POWs and that's why they wanted to kill their men because of their lust, you know. And it's like, I didn't find any evidence of that. And so I just felt like, This was the way to sort of rebuild the DNA from the ground up.
1: Great answer. And with all of that in mind, looking back at these crimes from a 21st century perspective, do you have any sympathy for the women and why they may have acted why they did?
2: I do have sympathy for them. And when I went into the story, I was just like, what? This is like, wow, this is crazy. But when you delve into the archives... And you hear or have the gendarme reports read, their confessions read, you know, in their words, that's when it kind of hits you. These are people. These are real people. And I felt like it was something that this is happening still today. There's no more Me Too than this episode that happened in Nagarif and that Normal people in normal situations don't want to kill their husbands. You have to be pretty desperate. And you also have a very desperate situation where you have sort of this culture of abuse, not just in Nagarev, not just in Hungary, not just in Austria, but a culture of abuse that it's okay to abuse women that was going on at the time, it still goes on. But you also had laid into that these. Boys going off to war, boys, 18, 19-year-old boys going off to war on the absolute worst front imaginable, coming back home, suffering from what we now call PTSD, but to the hundredth millionth degree, and not having any help. Not having any medicine, not having any um, counseling, not having any idea what's going on in their heads, not having any buddies they can talk to because either their buddies were killed or, or so locked up in themselves that they can't, can't form a, a union with each other. And you're taking that violence and putting it in a very tiny house with a very vulnerable woman and in often case children. And so it just made a culture of abuse just dropped a bomb of abuse in there because you had these men who weren't getting the help they needed coming back into a situation and it became quite volatile. And I wouldn't say that that's the case in every single case, but it certainly didn't help.
1: And finally, what's the most surprising thing you encountered during your research?
2: Well, my research was, it took me 14 years to write this book. And it was about eight years of research and writing. And I hired a historian from Solnok who spoke English, aptly named Attila Tokai. And I hired a couple of English teachers to transcribe articles and things. And one day, Attila and I were sitting—I moved there for a time as well to to do the research. And one day, Attila and I were going— in the archives, and we're talking box, like cardboard boxes and stuff. Nothing was digitized, no microfiche or anything, just cardboard boxes. And a lot of it was this handwritten materials. And there was a psychological report. Now, this would be 1930. So you imagine Sigmund Freud is not too far away in Vienna. So the psychology is very new. Psychiatry is very new. And there was a report by a Dr. Feldman who had was with the women in prison. And what was so fascinating to me that two women who were each being kept in separate cells, had no contact with each other, no access to each other, were reporting to him the same dream they had. And I found that absolutely, they were having, a, each were having a recurring nightmare that was the same recurring nightmare, that they were down there at the village along the river and they were car- one was carrying a brick in her hand, and both of them were looking for a place to build their house, and it was on sand, and they suddenly were consumed by um, quicksand. I found that utterly fascinating. And it, it to me, said so much about the psyche of these women were almost operating as one brain or something. <laughs> it was so bizarre that they would have the exact same recurring nightmare, having no access to each other to even talk about this. I think one was in solitary confinement at the time. So that just blew me away.
0: That was Patty McCracken. Her book, The Angel Makers, The True Story of the Most Astonishing Murdering in History, is out now, published by Mudlark. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.